0: On this episode of Trees and Lines, we talk with Steve Hallmark. We talked with Steve about his experience and insights into the vegetation management industry and what kind of trends he sees going forward. Have a listen. Hope you enjoy.
1: Super excited. I'm with two of my favorite people um, in, the, in the industry. Uh, we welcome Steve Hallmark today. Uh, Steve, welcome. Thank you. Uh, Steve, of course, is a is a long time legend of the industry, um, and has very uniquely spent uh, an incredible amount of time on the utility side and in the private sector, which which is pretty unique. And we're gonna we're gonna dive into a lot of different aspects of Steve's career and and pick his brain on a bunch of different stuff today. So, uh, Steve, man, really really excited to to have you here today. Um, maybe Steve, you could just kind of for our audience. Um, give a little background on, you know, how your career started. Um, I know you're a Texas kid, Um, and that's where it it all kicked off but you know kind of take us through the quick journey from Puget, SMUD, Phil Singer, all that stuff
2: Graduated from Stephen F. Austin State University back in 1981 so it's been 40 almost 40 well 41 and a half years now so I uh, didn't unfortunately during COVID we didn't get to have a class reunion with our 40th uh, anniversary of graduation but all my buddies and and cohorts still plan on doing that but yeah um, I uh, spent my five, uh, first five years uh, working for what was then Gulf States Utilities, which is now part of the Energy Organization. Um, from there, uh, I'd left after, for a short time, I call it my sabbatical, to the private sector working for one of the large um, uh, line clearance contractors, but decided I really wanted, you know, my heart was working for the utilities and in, in this industry. So, um, I interviewed and was hired by John Goodfellow up at Puget Sound Energy. Back then, it was actually uh, Puget Sound Power and Light. So, moved there in, in 1989, and under John's tutelage, really kind of like really did a, a you know crash course, and you know, and really the present day of I think you know really kicked me into gear as to how I got really more and more involved in the industry because John has also you know throughout his career been such a big stalwart you know with what we did. So, spent uh, eight years up there. Kind of got tired of the wet gray uh long winters of Seattle and uh, chose to move south to California and uh, was hired by uh, then the, well it's the Sacramento municipal utility district and they had never had a professional manager running their program they'd always been kind of you know brought people up from within, but no one that had really spent time with managing a a you know a turnkey type program, which is what they wanted because of a lot of the legislation changes that were going on in the state of California. So I was uh, um, brought down to help them set up their program and did that and and many other things while I was there uh, in in Sacramento. But really, just like I said, my really Kickoff to really getting more involved in the industry and in different organizations and associations was was you know working for John and then you know obviously moving on from that you know and and developing myself professionally uh, after I retired in two thousand and eighteen. I went into doing some private consulting. I was actually hired by a firm to um, working for the California State Governor's Office, overseeing PG&E's wildfire mitigation plan implementation, um, and that was very rewarding because I already knew a lot of the people that I was working with at PG&E, but really got to see the inside of how an investor-owned utility, because SMUD being a municipal, um, we have we operate under different requirements. So we got to spend a lot of, I got to spend a lot of time understanding on the IOU side, what their challenges are with dealing with the wildfire threats there in California and all the requirements they have to do now. So, and then uh, someone kept knocking at my door and, uh, and in July we, uh, I, I came over and, and joined Phil and, and Ted at Iapetus.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was definitely knocking at your door. That's for sure. Uh, I was bothering you for, for a while. Ted
0: i uh tell you that Steve at uh, SMUD was one of the very first utilities to be recognized as a right-of-way steward and the uh, only municipal utility. Wait, did that
1: happen under Steve's sort of reign? Mm-hmm. Wow. That's correct. Okay. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Oh,
2: that's amazing. I used to think preparing for uh, NERC audits were going to be a challenge. But preparing for and getting... Going through the uh, the you know right away stewardship accreditation is I think it's even a higher level. I think once a utility has made that effort, it there to be greatly you know uh, commended because it's not it's not a walk in the park. You just don't get anointed. Yeah, you don't get to write your check and get the plaque to hang on your wall. You got to prove yourself.
1: What was the decision by you and the SWAD leadership to pursue that uh, right away stewardship that accreditation?
2: Well, it was, it really was my decision. You know, I went to, you know, the, to me, the cost was not this, it was pretty insignificant as far as what, you know, it was more of the, you know, the intensity of, you know, dedicating the the staff resources and, and going through the whole process of doing the accreditation. But, you know, I w- Fortunately, um, SMUD is a utility that recognizes on, an, you know, the, the importance of being, you know, re- uh, recognized uh, by your peers. I mean, they're the sixth largest municipal utility in the U.S. So, it's they're not, it's not little, some little small, small podunk utility. I mean, they're the second largest in California behind first being uh, the larger one being LADWP. So, the, fortunately, my, you know, my peers and, you know, my superiors both felt like, yeah, we, they really cherished, you know, especially when it's is, is something that you have to go through a, a pretty good rigor to be, you know, to be accepted and, and acknowledge that you meet the criteria that, uh, that right away stewardship does.
1: You know, in, in our recent travels, um, I find that in talking with the modern day sort of vegetation leaders today, that there are executives out there that are excited about that accreditation are you know discussing on in terms of how to pursue it. Um, so it definitely seems like it's it's catching some momentum even today. So it's very interested to see how that kind of plays out if this becomes the the industry standard and you know we're gonna see more than just eight utilities secure that accreditation.
0: Hey Steve, you mentioned you were at Puget and then you went to SMUD and uh, so from a manager standpoint, what's the difference between working within the uh, IOU and the municipal environment?
2: You know, with IOUs, you have a little more flexibility, um, uh, being that anytime that you're dealing with a utility that's owned by either, in Smut's case, it's actually a, it's, uh, it was formed under what California's MUD Act, which is a Municipal Utility District Act, which we aren't a part of Sa- the city of Sacramento. It's its own unique um, uh, uh district that is has a an elected board that actually oversees the the utility so it was in that case it's you have to you know very different in that working for an IOU it's a you know more of a, a of a private organization you have much more flexibility oftentimes in some of your contracting and ability to you know go out and and and, re, and, and recruit and bring in new companies as an example with you know with a municipal utility, you have much more limited in those abilities. You you, you have very kind of pretty small, tight lanes that you have to stay within. You can't just, you know, you you don't have the ability to always just say, hey, I want to hire this company. Well, if it's going to be over so much money, you've got to go out for for bids, you know, and you're just, you have some limitations. And so I think that was the biggest, when I went there, that was one of the biggest challenges for me from just the, you know, the contracting perspective of the, you know, I'm I mean, we've, there's ways that you can always have good contracts and get, bring in good quality companies. You just have a lot more rigors that you have to go through in order to be able to bring in you know, and make sure you, you write good specs. That's the one thing that really learned me is I you really have to step your game up and make sure you have clear, concise specs so that you make sure that you get what you want as far as your contracting needs. So was
0: it always low bid? Is that...
2: It is um and fortunately we're getting away you know the the industry is finding that um, you know low bid is not you know I, I think the industry as a whole is learning that going with low bid is not necessarily the 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 answer uh, is not just about saving money because with low bid sometimes the quality of the work can be extremely um Substandard and unless you have good controls in place to make sure that those types of companies don't come on, you know, on your property and start working, I'm, you know, it, it, low bid is not always the answer. And unfortunately, and, and you put in good, you know, you, you prerequisites as far as what you have to qualify to be able to bid and then performance standards that you have to meet in order to stay on the property. And I think that's it's critical in, what, in the big shift that I saw and say the last 10 to 15 years so over the course of my career.
0: Yeah, you still see uh, people struggling with the idea of getting sourcing on board with that concept.
2: Yeah. They
0: yeah. still like low bid.
2: Oh yeah, <laughs> they do. Um, but we've been uh, able to, I think, more and more utilities are. Uh, I'm finding too that they're learning that that you know, low bid isn't necessarily the right answer. You've got to put in some uh, some quality control, and sometimes you're going to pay a premium. But the end product is going to be superior to what you can accomplish by going with, you know, just the guy that can do the work for the cheapest, especially when you're on the safety side of it. Because oftentimes, you know, with the low bid, unfortunately, what we've seen or I saw over the course of my career was that safety was one of the things that probably suffered when you dealt with, you know, contractors that were trying to cut corners to make their um uh you know to make money or even break even on the projects well it's good to
0: see that more and more utilities are refusing to give on the safety side
2: yeah yes well and that and that's a huge piece for me what i saw at the beginning of my career it was like there was no there was really no focus on the safety by the contractors it was like you know Make sure you got the bodies to staff the the crews we didn 't care if they got hurt or not and i I'm, I say that honestly i I think a lot of my contemporaries could probably see say the same thing that they saw back in the early part of their careers in the you know like I said early eighties on my part, but over the course of my career, I saw a steady increase in how well and in One of the big places I first saw it was with, you know, working at Puget and the emphasis that we placed on how safely the contractors and, you know, we would shut contractors down if they weren't safe. You know, we were just fat to say, you have no place on this property if you can't perform in the safety arena. So you've got there's another way that you've got to put good controls when you bring a new company in to understand how their safety performance is going to affect their work once they're on your property. How would you advise
1: um, folks who are kind of in, in, in the prime of their utility careers and are considering leaving the utility and, and moving to the private side? What, what is some guidance that you would offer them, given that you've actually lived in, in, on both sides of the fence
2: uh, over the course of my career? And is it, I be, it became more apparent that the need, as I got you know moved on and up within an organization, is to develop relationships and have um people that I could turn to in, you know, kind of like in confidence, um, but confidentially, about how to help, you know, guide me and 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 people that I looked up to and how they performed and how they were being successful and to how to guide my career as I went. Because just, you know, there's the you know, I think about this too, is there, you know, the old saying about the peter principle you know about someone promotes 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 until they get to a point where this person has no business to be in this in this role because they are no you know they they're way over their head and so you've got to be able to recognize and sometimes someone that you have take you know that you that's taking you under their wing they may be able to tell you he says you know I don't think that might be the best job career choice for you because you're gonna sure you're gonna get that promotion, but are you gonna be successful? That's what you got to help people understand that as they you know as they want that job, okay, what's it gonna look like to be successful, and what if you're not successful? Because if you're not, that's gonna be a blemish on your career, and I think that's what people I've seen that happen more often than not. They want that big promotion, they get it, they fail, and it really. They struggle after a while, if they ever recover, actually.
1: Is there something that in the, you know, you obviously have had, uh, you know, a long career in the industry, done a lot of incredible things. Is there something that you think you left on the table where you're like, hey, you know, I just, maybe I ran out of time or the industry wasn't ready to adopt X, Y, or Z, something that you wish that you could have implemented before you left, uh, kind of. The, the utility side of the of, of the industry
2: one of the things i 've always been glad that I did was i didn 't do it, at, it when I left Puget because it was kind of a, not really a plan thing it is kind of it kind of just and I always teased John about this because he had gone back, to, back one, to one of the original trees and utilities conferences back when they were held at, um, in Nebraska at the, national, uh, at the Arbor Day Foundation uh, uh, headquarters in, in Nebraska. And he came back from that, and he brought me this job posting said, hey, you might want to share this with some of your folks that, um, you know, that work for you. They might be interested in going to Sacramento. And I looked at it, and I said, I'll do that. <laughs> well, <laughs> guess what? I put in for that job and I got that job. But what I felt was important was when I left S- Sacramento is that, I, you know, I, my legacy is going to be how the program continues after I leave there. And I wanted to, you know, I, I, I think that that's kind of why at that point in time, my, uh, my the director that I was working for, he and I developed plans, and said, hey, I'm out of here in two to three years. Let's make sure that we get somebody. I don't do it like me coming in here and having to learn the system. I'd rather get somebody in here that can work and understand for a few years under, under my guidance and then go on to ultimately Um, uh, run the program and that's how we uh, ended up hiring while I was still there we hired Eric Brown to come in and he ultimately after I left uh, he ultimately is now the manager of the program there so uh, I guess that was I think to me is critical is sometimes when individual you know, when comp- at that level when corporations don't have kind of like a, a, a plan in place like a for when they have a yep. like succession plan exactly of okay, you know, just like and it can't be just the person that's always that's been there the longest i've seen that you know it's okay well you know they're next in line well that's not shouldn't be the case you know yeah you may hurt some feelings but you need to turn you know the the handing off of the gavel needs to be to the right person that can continue to build the program you know because you know you don't want it to go backwards and i and sometimes i think programs do go backwards if they don't have the right succession plan in place
0: yeah it's interesting you have uh I think I met you in 89, probably when you first got to Puget and uh, known you a long time. Yeah, still uh, worked su- for me back
2: then. <laughs> yep.
0: Unbelievable. To be successful, uh, you had to manage staffs at both Puget yep. and, um, but I'm guessing success doesn't come from managing your staff as much as managing your manager.
2: Yeah. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. But I learned this early on. It, well, I had to do two things because I, I was hired in as, as just a regular division forester by John. And then after I'd been there not quite a, a year, John was promoted into a different position and um, I was named his replacement so you know i I came in and and you know i other people that had been there much longer than I you know weren't selected and whereas I was the, the selected to replace john in his role i fortunately he still was at the utility, so I had him to to lean on but that was the first it, my first big promotion where I had to learn okay, I've got to let go of the reins on that side of the business and let people do their job and help them be successful. And that's, and I had struggled with that for about the first six months of that. I always wanted to go back and, and kind of mess with, in the guy's business that replaced me out in the field. And finally he got, you know, he had told me one time, you know, got up, he said, Hey, you just need to go do your job and let me do my job. And then if I'm not doing my job, we'll have a discussion, but for, just let hands off. And I said, Oh, I understand that now. So I think that's the first step. You've got to learn how to, you know, step back and be more strategic in your thinking and how you manage and not be so operationally uh, inclined. But then the big thing for me and you know, most all of my staff, you know, especially there, were from a vegetation forester or you know biologist that type of a background. We foresters and tend to think different than engineers and accountants. And let's face it. Utilities are run by you, by engineers and accountants and they understand numbers and they're, they're very, you know, they, we foresters tend to be a little more abstract in their thinking and they have to think more, you know, you know, have critical thinking to be able to manage and and sell themselves and their their ideas up to the people that they're working for and understand how to deal with those, uh, you know, the accountants and the engineers of the, uh, the corporations. And I think the ones that do are the ones that are successful.
1: You know, there's lots of technology now. There's, you know, programs have evolved. Um, you know, there's people using new innovative approaches to how they think about vegetation management. There's more dollars utility is, you know, earmarking for this type of work. You know, where do you think we are in the life cycle of this industry? Are we in a good place? Um, are we regressing? Like,
2: where are we? I kind of get the feel in talking with my contemporaries back out in the industry, you know, from the, uh, that there's just so much technology is being thrown at them as we're the next best thing to help you solve all your problems, and I think they're just overwhelmed at times because there's so much stuff out there and they don't honestly know what to believe. Um, and I think they're you know they sometimes sold bills of goods which don't deliver, and they become very frustrated with that. And I think also sometimes you know once you say okay I want this solution the time that it takes to actually implement that solution. It's not, doesn't happen overnight.
1: I've heard a similar sort of narrative and maybe that's just the iterative process. Like it's exciting. People took a first bite. There was some things that were real. There were some things that were not real. And the industry is kind of going through its second, third iteration of like figuring out, you know, what's going to be important and what is isn't. No, I I see that as well. Um, Very good. Okay. Um, Well, Steve, before we we kind of get out of here um you know i gotta i gotta ask you some questions about you know uh something I learned about you on a personal level, which I think is fascinating is your your you and your wife's passion for kind of riding horses like doing kind of the the long rides that kind of thing so tell us a how in the world did you get into that and b where did you get into it
2: well my wife was already into horses when we got married, and um she had um, we had moved to Washington. Uh, we we moved to Washington a year after we got married, and she brought her. Uh, well, she had a she had a thoroughbred that she had bred, um, uh, and then so it was brought up later by our friends that had bred her for. Her. And we and my wife had gotten introduced to the. She liked to fox hunt, and there is actually one of it's the oldest fox hunting club, um, which is a sport involving horses chasing fox with, uh, with foxhounds through the woods. Well, uh, the oldest, uh, uh, recognized fox hunt in the uh, west of the mississippi is located just outside of tacoma washington so she had gone and she had gone to see this um, uh, fox hunt got introduced to some people that did endurance and we got went over to their house one night for dinner and they got a phone call said hey i got this horse i need to get rid of and at the time i didn't have one so i had you know they said he just doesn't get along with my horses we need to get him out of here just um, yep yeah. so we went over there and looked at him that night and said well hell we're we'll take him." i'm Of course, I think back then, that's when you're kind of young and not necessarily thinking in the right (laughs) things. But, well, that was, it was a big, it's, uh, it was a big, uh, what's called a um, uh, spotted Appaloosa, and he's, uh, or a leopard Appaloosa. Um, He's white with liver color spots all over him and he and i started endurance riding and then when we moved to california um that's the mecca for endurance riding in the u.s that's really where the sport started and uh, i got involved in it doing um and you know much more uh, endurance riding down there where you've done some in washington but then got involved in doing the it's a Famous race that starts um, up my Lake Tahoe and ends in Auburn, California, and it's a 100 miles over um, that you have to complete. It basically you start you know over the Sierras uh, and you have 24 hours to complete it. So I've got, uh, uh, I've got two completions on that. So incredible. I think the body's a little too old now to keep doing that stuff. So mo- it's much more shorter rides now. We don't do the hundred milers anymore.
0: I'm not sure about looking for a cantankerous horses. The quality <laughs> you look for in the first one.
2: No, yeah. well, I tell you what, those ones <laughs> teach you a lot though. I, I said, okay, if I can get through this guy, I can get through just about anything. Well, Steve
1: it was, it was a great conversation, great catching up with you. Um, I'm glad, you you know, we were able to, you were able to share some insights with us, uh, from, from your long, very successful career in, in the space. So, uh, thanks for being with us today, my friend, and we'll see you soon.
2: Thank you. I've enjoyed it, and you know, obviously, uh, it's been a real pleasure getting to reconnect. And now, you know, Phil and I were often on, on the other, you know, opposite sides of the table for years. You know, either you know as a working for me, or as uh, you know as the UA executive director. But now, getting to work with Phil and we, uh, you know, it's it's as well as with you, Tesh, it's, been, oh, yeah. no, you know, it's been, it's uh, been, pure, it's, been yeah, it's, it's been a
1: pure joy. It's been a pure joy, and, and there's nothing better for me than sharing a beer with you guys and letting... just listening to to the stories. You're talking about 81. I was, like, four. So... I'm like, what? (laughs) So...
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Trees and Lines, sponsored by Iapetus Holdings, LLC. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. If you have any questions or if you have ideas for future episodes, please contact us at treesandlines at IapetusLC.com.